You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. In this episode of First Look, Jonathan Capehart sits down with Ann Guerin, Ruth Marcus, and Megan McArdle to discuss Biden's speech at the UN and the potential for a government shutdown. Let's listen. Welcome to First Look, the Washington Post. <laughs> Excuse me. That's a great way to start a Friday. Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. President Biden and his administration have had a busy week. He was at the UN outlining America's commitment to democracy and vaccines while defending his administration's decision on Afghanistan. Meanwhile, his administration is preparing for a government shutdown in the middle of a pandemic as it also rings the alarms about an impending and unprecedented default. There's no better person to talk about all of this than the Washington Post White House correspondent, Ann Guerin. Ann, welcome to First Look. Happy to be here, Jonathan. All right, there's so much news to talk about. I mentioned all those things, but there's breaking news out of Arizona that I just have to uh, ask you about before we um, get to this, and I'm sure, I'm just wondering, have you heard from anyone at the White House about the breaking news out of Arizona overnight that the Donald Trump-backed cyber ninjas audit of Arizona votes in Maricopa County found that President Biden won the state by more votes? Any word out of the White House about this news? Uh, well, very quickly, n- not officially, uh, but uh, the, the White House um, is uh, privately saying things like, well, Donald Trump did want them to find more votes. <laughs> and they did, just not in his favor. Okay, <laughs> let, let, let's move on to another sort of big lie related um, situation, and that is the January 6th Select Committee. Um, Yesterday, the Select Committee issued its first subpoenas to Trump loyalists Kash Patel, Kash Patel, Mark Meadows, Dan Scavino, and Steve Bannon. The very same day, the Post reported that the White House is leaning towards releasing information to Congress about what Donald Trump and his aides were doing during the insurrection uh, at the Capitol. It's a huge legal and political, uh, there are huge legal and political ramifications here. Will the United, will the White House, do you think, go from leaning to doing? And then what kind of information might they, might they release? Well, I don't know whether they will go to the doing part, but certainly the indications are that, that the White House thinks it has full authority uh, to release this information and perhaps earlier than is laid out in a, in a very complicated statute. Um, certainly after 60 days under that statute, uh, the White House has the authority to release it, even if Donald Trump has objected in the meantime. This boils down to a, a rather tricky question of whether uh, Trump as an ex-president uh, can credibly claim some kind of some version of executive privilege, which is uh, what uh, sitting presidents uh, frequently use to to prevent the release of of all kinds of information and documents. Uh, Mm -hmm. Also, I would say that the House-led, the uh, Democratic-led committee believes that it has the authority uh, to, to both collect and release this information. So my gut is that the information will come out. I just don't know how officially it will come out from the White House. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be talking to Ruth Marcus and Megan McCardle uh, about that executive privilege 
claim possibly coming from Donald Trump in the opinions portion later on. Um, let's talk government shutdown. Yesterday, the White House told uh, agencies to prepare for the first government shutdown um, of the Biden uh, presidency, but also during the, the pandemic, which, you know, telling agencies to get ready is normal protocol. But what is the president doing to avert a government shutdown? Well, that is a very good question. We have not heard from the president on this subject uh, in, in many days uh, directly. In fact, we haven't really heard directly from him uh, in, in a question and answer format for, for quite some days. Uh, the, the OMB directive yesterday to agencies is, as you noted, standard seven days before uh, a deadline. That deadline is the end of next week. It's one of several important deadlines uh, next week that both the House uh, uh, and the White House are, are working against. And of course, the big question uh, happens uh, when all of those things come before the Senate and, and what the Senate will agree to in addition to the uh, shutdown question, which is uh, about the budget. There is a separate but related question about raising the debt ceiling. I, I actually prefer the term borrowing limit. I think it's easier for people to understand what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, and whether all those things get wrapped into one piece of legislation or two, whether Nancy Pelosi has to backtrack, there's a lot that there are a lot of moving pieces here. And thus far, we haven't heard the president say directly, here's how I would like it to go. Right. The only thing we know that the president has been actively involved in is in the negotiations over the reconciliation package and trying to build bridges between moderates and progressives within the Democratic Party about the hard infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill. But that's a we'll be talking about that probably next week. And let's talk about the president's speech at the U.N. Um, how was it received? It was Biden's first speech there uh, at the U.N. General Assembly as president of the United States. I would say the reception was was polite and muted. Um, the president really didn't really make any news in, in his UN speech. Uh, he you know he do he did draw some applause uh, at the end uh, for some remarks about uh, unity and alliances and, and and so forth. But much of the speech really was uh, directed at China without naming China or making it explicit that he was talking about China. And that sets up a lot of complicated dynamics. Many of the countries uh, listening to him, whose representatives were listening to him during that speech, have their own complicated relationships with China. Uh, and, and many US allies, including uh, prominently in Europe, are nervous about the somewhat confrontational stance that, that President Biden is taking toward China. Uh, they have their own uh, commercial and, and other relationships, uh, borrowing relationships and all kinds of things uh, with China. And they are hesitant to you know, jump in the boat with, with uh, the Biden administration in what some see as a needlessly uh, confrontational approach. The other main thing he was doing there was uh, defending the withdrawal from Afghanistan and, in his view, the pivot to much more important uh, topics, of, namely China. Uh, but, you know, the, making the argument that he has made before that the fights of the future are elsewhere, they're not counterterrorism focused, they're not in Afghanistan. Um, when it comes to the allies, I distinctly remember it was President Biden and President Macron of France when they were at the G7, where President Macron said, quote, America is back. And there is the president months later, two or three months later, at the UN General Assembly in the middle of a huge fight with France over the sub of the submarine deal with Australia. I'm just wondering, um, 
how how are the allies or how were the allies feeling about President Biden in the middle in that speech? Do they believe that America truly is back, given all the things we've seen in those three months? Yeah, I think there's a great deal of of disappointment uh, in the way the president has handled alliances leading up to that speech. Uh, again, the reception for the speech itself uh, was polite. He he said a lot of the right things in in, in their view. I will note that uh, the the G7 moment is even worse than we knew at the time. It was that same weekend that that very uh, set of of meetings during which the president was getting this uh, this secret sub deal going. Uh, uh, with, with, with Australia. So it was kind of amazing, right? Like there he is sitting out on the beach back slapping with Macron, like my friend. Yeah. yeah that, I did not have um, major diplomatic rupture with France on my UN bingo card this year. So bad on me. <laughs> uh, one more question, Anne, before I let you go. And that is something else that happened this week that was pretty startling. And that was what was happening on the, the southern border with Mexico and the, the U.S. Border Patrol on horseback, forcibly preventing uh, Haitian migrants from crossing the border. Also, the Biden administration deporting Haitian migrants who haven't been in Haiti since for about 10 years. They're coming up through South America, deporting them to Haiti, which is still reeling from the big earthquake a month or so ago. The, what's, yeah, what this- is the, it, yeah, go ahead. As you say, this is a this is a problem for the White House on many fronts. I mean, first you have a humanitarian problem at the border. Second, you have the uh, these disturbing images uh, of the way the uh, Border Patrol, part of the U.S. government, uh, is handling that. Uh, with uh, Democratic lawmakers uh, and civil rights groups uh, piling on the White House, saying, how in the world can you countenance this? Uh, Maxine Waters saying it looks like slavery to her. Uh, I mean, you know, there, there's a whole lot going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, there is the, the larger question for, for, for the White House of the policy here, which is a continuation of the Trump administration's policy of uh, deporting when possible on public health grounds uh, as a pandemic control measure. A lot of people see that as a fig leaf for just getting rid of people uh, who might otherwise uh, be uh, admitted to the country. Uh, right. and, and avoiding a, an immigration fight. And you know, we had the, the special envoy for Haiti resigning over this uh, uh, yesterday. Right. Um, and Garen, as always, when you and I get to talking, we've got too many topics and not enough time. Uh, so we're going to have to leave it there. And Garen, White House correspondent for The Washington Post, thank you very much for coming back to First Look. My pleasure. All right. We're going to keep the conversation going about the big decisions Uh, Coming from the White House with our Opinions Roundtable in just a few minutes. Stay with us. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post Deputy Editorial Page Editor Ruth Marcus and Washington Post columnist Megan McArdle. Ruth, Megan, welcome to First Look. Good morning. I'm sorry it was such a slow week. (laughs) Oh, really? Right? Um, Okay. So we've got to start this conversation talking about um, the breaking news out of Arizona, the the cyber ninjas, <clears throat> cyber ninjas audit, <laughs> the Trump-backed cyber ninjas audit that was supposed to show that Arizona was stolen. And in fact, what they found out was that actually Joe Biden got more votes than initially um, 
<laughs> initially counted. I'm sorry. Ruth, you, you, your reaction to this first, and then I'm going to make it. Oh, well, it's obvious what happened. The audit was rigged. It's a rigged <laughs> audit. I, what, else can the, what else can President Trump say? I mean, as with so many things, if you had to write this in a Veep-type TV script, you could not come up with a better outcome that even these knucklehead non-auditors could not invent votes, uh, new votes for Donald Trump that would cause Donald Trump to win Arizona or be president, which he apparently believes he is. And you know, Megan, oh, <laughs> is right. And you know, Megan, this comes out just as there's um, Donald Trump called on Texas to do an audit of its votes. And he won Texas. And even more insane, the governor said, yeah, sure, let's do it. Is there no end to this insanity? I don't think, I'm not sure there is. I mean, I think it's it's like this kind of article of faith now. And, you know, it, it's sort of like, if you look back at these doomsday cults um, that predict the end of the world on, on a date certain, and then the world does not end. And you would think that would be the point at which the doomsday cult disassembles, but no, often they just double down. Well, we got the date wrong, but, um, and I think that's what you're seeing here. Look, he doesn't, what else does he have? You're, you're seeing, I, I saw even crazier Josh Mandel, who's in a um, difficult primary in Ohio running against J.D. Vance, called for, the, called for an audit of all 50 states, including Ohio, which Trump won overwhelmingly. It's <laughs> Right. It's completely nuts. But it is this um, absolutely like they, they they have so little else to go on at this point. Right. What is mm -hmm. the Republican Party except slavish loyalty to Trump and the crazy notion that he actually secretly won the 2020 election? And, you know, they can't let it go because that mm -hmm. would require them to actually, I don't know, come up with some policies, perhaps have an agenda. And they're not ready for that. You know, so, John, yeah, ahead, we're, chuckling, we're, we're chuckling because this seems so ludicrous, but honestly, we shouldn't be chuckling because the impact of this kind of argument is toxic. It's toxic for public trust in the outcome of elections. We see that in the polling. So um, while I, I said ha, so I'm criticizing myself, we should probably cut the chortling and um, start worrying a little bit more about well, the, these kinds of arguments. No, well, you're absolutely right. And I was going to um, <clears throat> make the, the, the transition. You used the great word, um, toxic. The Arizona um, audit and all these audits and the questioning of the 2020 uh, election results, um, you know, they are toxic. And we saw the, we saw the impact of those lies, um, the impact of the big lie on January 6th with the insurrection. And, and that leads me to talking, uh, asking about the January 6th select committees sending out the subpoenas to Kosh Patel, Steve Bannon, Mark Meadows, and Dan, Sc Dan Scavino uh, to produce, uh, the, the, to come to the select committee. Uh, Ruth, I mean, this marks a turning point for, for this investigation. Do you think these four folks are actually going to comply with the subpoenas? Well, I'm going to put Steve Bannon to one side because he does not have any valid claim of uh, executive privilege because he was not working for or in the White House or administration at the time. Um, as to the others, uh, it's a really complicated 
legal question about what and undecided really, as I understand it, uh, about what authority a former president might have to invoke executive privilege to stop either the documents, and he's got a less good claim on the documents because uh, to a large extent, the current president, President Biden, uh, is the boss of the National Archives with regard to that, and he has waived executive privilege. But um, Trump could try to mess up the documents. He could also assert executive privilege with respect to his former aides. That uh, my understanding has been, by the way, that he's been reluctant to do that in previous incarnations of this argument because he didn't want to actually have to ante up the legal fees to do it. But <laughs> assuming he is willing, seriously, um, uh, his lawyers didn't want to do it for free. So uh, to the extent he's willing to write that check, we could have this tied up in litigation for some time. But this is an important step. And I'm just going to say one last thing. It's also um, necessary but not complete step. We need to be looking at what happened on January 6th, but we also need, as I've written before, to be looking at some of the sort of pre-coup, silent coup things that were happening at the Justice Department even before January 6th. Right. And, and Megan, um, same question to you in terms of um, the significance that these subpoenas, these four subpoenas to um, Trump loyalists, former Trump, Trump administration officials, um, the, the significance that they've gone out. Look, I think it's it's a sign that Democrats are going to go big and litigate this. I'm not entirely confident that's the right decision for the country, even though um, I stood four square against January 6th, thought it was at like a very serious attempt to overthrow the, the results of, of a legitimate election and that this incredibly corrosive and toxic to the civic fabric. Um, my question is, at this point, is this a question that litigating it actually changes any minds among the American public, actually makes it less likely that this is going to happen in the future? And I'm not sure that the answer is yes. And if the answer is not yes, um, even though I think it should, right? I'm not I'm not defending the, I'm, I'm just looking kind of at the, the practical political level here. If we're just arguing about something where basically everyone's mind is set and no one's mind is going to be changed, I think you have two costs to that. And one is that it sucks up political oxygen from other stuff the Biden administration might want to do. But the other, the other problem is that it potentially just causes people to dig in even further, causes people to double down on the election audits and so forth, rather than putting it behind us. And I know that this sounds crazy to a lot of people that like the idea that something that serious we could ever just say, okay, we're going to move on now. Um, but I think if you look at history, in fact, very few national issues are resolved by having endless national conversations about them um, of this magnitude. I think, honestly, they, they usually are settled when people move on to something else. And I, I kind of wonder if we aren't just making the wounds worse rather than better. Okay, I, I'm, I'm, Megan, I'm going to have to take issue. Take issue with how can you say that no that no good for the country to for the select committee to do this? We're talking about an attack on our democracy at one of the more pivotal moments when the electoral college votes were being were being counted. I mean, I hear all the things that you're saying, and I understand where you're coming from. But at some point, this Ruth, jump in here. This has to be investigated, and even if nothing comes of it. It still has to be investigated. Okay, so Jonathan, my head's exploding too. <laughs> Thank you, Megan. Uh, look, this 
The argument we've been having all along is, okay, you can't charge a president criminally while he's in office. It would be really disruptive to national unity if you charged a president criminally um, when he's out of office, even if you can. And now Megan is arguing that we shouldn't even, because it would be disruptive to national unity, figure out what the heck happened on January 6th and in the run-up to January 6th and how we can prevent this again. The point is not um, to heal or knit together the country because honestly, doing this isn't gonna make things any worse. The point is to find out what happened here in the United States of America that allowed a coup to near succeed uh, in 2021 and, and the run up to January 6th. And it is imperative that we find that out. I could not disagree more strongly. Well, um, so let's let go, oh, go ahead, Megan. <laughs> so, so let me say, first of all, I really doubt we're going to figure out what led up to this, right? I don't, I'm not actually sure that like deep insights are going to come out of, come out of this um, and that we're somehow going to understand how we could stop it in the future. Um, I'm deep. Facts. Let's get some facts. Let's get some documents. Let's get some emails. Let's get some testimony. But, but the second thing is like, look, I wanted Trump impeached and removed from office after January 6th. I frankly would have supported impeaching him and removing him from office before January 6th if they could have gotten the votes. If you could have criminally charged him, I would have been in favor of that. My point is that at this point, if, we, if you could criminally charge him now, I would be in favor of that and prevent him from running again. But absent that, absent the ability to actually remove Trump from the political scene, which I don't see this generating, um, I question whether spending enormous amounts of political capital and, and effort on this, I'm not against it. I'm not like upset that it's happening. I am just worried that it is not, in fact, going to move us any further towards a less coup-ridden or less whatever you want to call what happened on January 6th for our Republican listeners towards a, a, a democracy where that can't happen again. I'm not sure this is moving us in that direction. I think it might be treading water, which is fine. I think it might actually end up going in the other direction, which is not. Ruth, my question here is, um, let's take the, the, the attention for a minute away from Donald Trump and talk about the signal these subpoenas and this investigation sends to would-be Donald Trumps, to those people who, um, like the what's the uh, the Josh Hawleys and the Ted Cruz's and the um, Marjorie Taylor Greens to say, um, if you try to do this, there will be some kind of consequence for this. Isn't there a, a signal value here to to these investigations? Well, I am not sure that those guys can be very effectively chilled in their bad behavior. I mean, but, but <laughs> bad I examples, do, but you get what yeah, I mean. But but I do think that the we have had in every significant uh, event in modern American history a look, often a congressionally authorized or congressionally conducted look into what went wrong. We had the 9/11 Commission. We've had um, commissions about many, many other things. Uh, we should have had a different kind of commission, but Republicans that was more independent and that might have uh, made uh, Megan's points, uh, might have, to Megan's point, might have calmed down people a little bit more. But we have the group that we have, the select committee that we have, 
And to think that we should not have an understanding of what happened on that day and in the run up to it because it won't change future events is just not the way we've conducted and for good reason, not the way we've conducted oversight business in the United States before this. Okay. We spent so much time on this that we now have less than two minutes and it's a hard out. We got to be out in two. We didn't talk about the government shutdown, impending government shutdown, raising the debt ceiling, um, tax increases proposed by the Democrats, COVID boosters decision, the president's, the president's speech at the UN. In 15 seconds, give me your final thoughts on any of those, uh, on any of those issues. Megan first. I think that the debt ceiling has long signaled that American governance is fundamentally broken, that Congress is incapable of legislating in a normal way, um, mm -hmm. and that it points to all of the deeper problems with all of these other things. And the fact that the democratic tax framework doesn't seem to actually be a framework. It's just an announcement that there, that there is maybe going to be a framework at some point in the future. Right, right. Uh, and I think that this is, we, we are a broken nation and we need to figure out how to heal. And Ruth. 15 seconds, Republican, seriously. Republican recalcitrance on the debt ceiling, Mitch McConnell's recalcitrance on the debt ceiling um, is shocking even me because this isn't just playing politics. This is playing um, with economic fire and the potential for burning down the mm -hmm. economy. And Ruth, I'm just going to let you know, I am going to try for this weekend to write, write a column about the debt ceiling because the Bipartisan Part Policy Center put out its my the nerdtastic sheets that I've been writing about for ten for for ten years now. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Ruth Marcus, Megan McArdle. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Ruth Marcus, Megan McArdle. We are out of time. Thanks for coming to First Look. Head to WashingtonPostLive.com to find more information about our upcoming programs. I'm Jonathan Capehart. Thank you for watching Washington Post Live's First Look. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.